Chapter Thirty, Part Two of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Adams. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two, Paris and Prison, by Jacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Macken. Episode Ten. Chapter Thirty, Part Two. In half an hour, the hole was large enough—a fortunate circumstance, for I should have had much trouble in making it any larger without the aid of a saw. I was afraid when I looked at the edges of the hole, for they bristled with jagged pieces of wood, which seemed made for tearing clothes and flesh together. The hole was at a height of five feet from the ground we placed beneath it two stools one beside the other and when we had stepped upon them the monk with arms crossed and head foremost began to make his way through the hole and taking him by the thighs and afterwards by the legs i succeeded in pushing him through and though it was dark i felt quite secure as i knew the surroundings as soon as my companion had reached the other side i threw him my belongings with the exception of the ropes which i left behind and placing a third stool on the two others i climbed up and got through as far as my middle though with much difficulty owing to the extreme narrowness of the hole then having nothing to grasp with my hands nor any one to push me as i had pushed the monk i asked him to take me and draw me gently and by slow degrees towards him he did so and i endured silently the fearful torture i had to undergo as my thighs and legs were torn by the splinters of wood as soon as i got through i made haste to pick up my bundle of linen and going down two flights of stairs i opened without difficulty the door leading into the passage whence opens the chief door to the grand staircase and in another the door of the closet of the savio alla scrittura the chief door was locked and i saw at once that failing a catapult or a mine of gunpowder i could not possibly get through the bar i still held seemed to say hic fines posuit my use is ended and you can lay me down it was dear to me as the instrument of freedom and was worthy of being hung as an ex voto on the altar of liberty i sat down with the utmost tranquillity and told the monk to do the same my work is done i said the rest must be left to god and fortune Abiaci regais ciel cura del resto, o la fortuna se non tocca a lui. I do not know whether those who sweep out the palace will come here today, which is All Saints' Day, or tomorrow, All Souls' Day. If any one comes, I should run out as soon as the door opens, and do you follow after me. But if nobody comes, I do not budge a step, and if I die of hunger, so much the worse for me. At this speech of mine he became beside himself. He called me a madman, seducer, deceiver, and a liar. I let him talk and took no notice. It struck six. Only an hour had passed since I had my awakening in the loft. My first task was to change my clothes. 
Father Balby looked like a peasant, but he was in better condition than I. His clothes were not torn to shreds or covered with blood. His red flannel waistcoat and purple breeches were intact, while my figure could only inspire pity or terror, so blood-stained and tattered was I. I took off my stockings, and the blood gushed out of two wounds I had given myself on the parapet, while the splinters in the hole in the door had torn my waistcoat, shirt, breeches, legs, and thighs. I was dreadfully wounded all over my body. I made bandages of handkerchiefs, and dressed my wounds as best I could, and then put on my fine suit, which on a winter's day would look odd enough. Having tied up my hair, I put on white stockings, a laced shirt, failing any other, and two others over it, and then, stowing away some stockings and handkerchiefs in my pockets, I threw everything else into a corner of the room. I flung my fine cloak over the monk, and the fellow looked as if he had stolen it. I must have looked like a man who had been to a dance, and had spent the rest of the night in a disorderly house though the only foil to my reasonable elegance of attire was the bandages round my knees. In this guise, with my exquisite hat trimmed with Spanish lace and adorned with a white feather on my head, I opened a window. I was immediately remarked by some lounger in the palace court, who, not understanding what any one of my appearance was doing there at such an early hour, went to tell the doorkeeper of the circumstance. He, thinking he must have locked somebody in the night before, went for his keys and came towards us. I was sorry to have let myself be seen at the window, not knowing that therein chance was working for our escape, and was sitting down listening to the idle talk of the monk when I heard the jingling of keys. Much perturbed, I got up and put my eye to a chink in the door, and saw a man with a great bunch of keys in his hand mounting leisurely up the stairs. I told the monk not to open his mouth, to keep well behind me, and to follow my steps. I took my pike, and, concealing it in my right sleeve, I got into a corner by the door, whence I could get out as soon as it was opened and run down the stairs. I prayed that the man might make no resistance, as if he did I should be obliged to fell him to the earth, and I determined to do so. The door opened, and the poor man, as soon as he saw me, seemed turned to a stone. Without an instant's delay, and in dead silence, I made haste to descend the stairs, the monk following me. Avoiding the appearance of a fugitive, but walking fast, I went by the giant's stairs, taking no notice of Father Balby, who kept calling out, To the church! To the church! The church door was only about twenty paces from the stairs, but the churches were no longer sanctuaries in Venice, and no one ever took refuge in them. The monk knew this, but fright had deprived him of his faculties. He told me afterwards that the motive which impelled him to go to the church was the voice of religion bidding him seek the horns of the altar. "'Why didn't you go by yourself?' said I. "'I did not like to abandon you.' But he should rather have said, "'I did not like to lose the comfort of your company.' The safety I sought was beyond the borders of the Republic, and thitherward I began to bend my steps. Already there in spirit, 
I must needs be there in body also. I went straight towards the chief door of the palace, and looking at no one that might be tempted to look at me, I got to the canal and entered the first gondola that I came across, shouting to the boatman on the poop, I want to go to Fusina, be quick and call another gondolier. This was soon done, and while the gondola was being got off, I sat down on the seat in the middle, and Balby at the side. The odd appearance of the monk, without a hat, and with a fine cloak on his shoulders, with my unseasonable attire, was enough to make people take us for an astrologer and his man. As soon as we had passed the custom-house, the gondoliers began to row with a will along the Judeca Canal, by which we must pass to go to Fusina or to Mestra, which latter place was really our destination. When we had traversed half the length of the canal, I put my head out, and said to the waterman on the poop, "'When do you think we shall get to Mestra?' "'But you told me to go to Fusina. You must be mad,' I said, "'Mestra!' The other boatman said that I was mistaken, and the fool of a monk, in his capacity of zealous Christian and friend of truth, took care to tell me that I was wrong. I wanted to give him a hearty kick as a punishment for his stupidity, but reflecting that common sense comes not by wishing for it, I burst into a peal of laughter, and agreed that I might have made a mistake, but that my real intention was to go to Mestra. To that they answered nothing, but a minute after the master boatman said he was ready to take me to England if I liked. Bravely spoken, said I, and now for Mestra, ho! We shall be there in three quarters of an hour, as the wind and the tide are in our favour. Well pleased, I looked at the canal behind us, and thought it had never seemed so fair, especially as there was not a single boat coming our way. It was a glorious morning. The air was clear and glowing with the first rays of the sun, and my two young watermen rode easily and well. And as I thought over the night of sorrow, the dangers I had escaped, the abode where I had been fast bound the day before, all the chances which had been in my favour, and the liberty of which I now began to taste the sweets, I was so moved in my heart and grateful to my God that, well nigh choked with emotion, I burst into tears. My nice companion, who had hitherto only spoken to back up the gondoliers, thought himself bound to offer me his consolations. He did not understand why I was weeping, and the tone he took made me pass from sweet affliction to a strange mirthfulness, which made him go astray once more as he thought I had got mad. The poor monk, as I have said, was a fool, and whatever was bad about him was the result of his folly. I had been under the sad necessity of turning him to account, but though without intending to do so, he had also been my ruin. It was no use trying to make him believe that I had told the gondoliers to go to Fusina whilst I intended to go to Mestra. He said I could not have thought of that till I got on to the Grand Canal. In due course we reached Mestra. There were no horses to ride post, but I found men with coaches who did as well, and I agreed with one of them to take me to Trevisa in an hour and a quarter. The horses were put in in three minutes, and with the idea that Father Balby was behind me, I turned round to say, Get up! But he was not there! 
I told an ostler to go and look for him with the intention of reprimanding him sharply, even if he had gone for a necessary occasion, for we had no time to waste, not even thus. The man came back, saying he could not find him, to my great rage and indignation. I was tempted to abandon him, but a feeling of humanity restrained me. I made inquiries all round. Everybody had seen him, but not a soul knew where he was. I walked along the high street, and some instinct prompted me to put my head in at the window of a café. I saw the wretched man standing at the bar drinking chocolate and making love to the girl. Catching sight of me, he pointed to the girl and said, "'She's charming,' and then invited me to take a cup of chocolate, saying that I must pay as he hadn't a penny. I kept back my wrath and answered, "'I don't want any, and do you make haste?' and caught hold of his arm in such sort that he turned white with pain. I paid the money, and we went out. I trembled with anger. We got into our coach, but we had scarcely gone ten paces before I recognized an inhabitant of Mestre named Balbi Tomassi, a good man of sorts, but reported to be one of the familiars of the Holy Office. He knew me too, and coming up called out, "'I'm delighted to see you here. I suppose you've just escaped. How did you do it?' "'I have not escaped, but have been set at liberty.' "'No, no, that's not possible, as I was at Monsieur Grimani's yesterday evening, and I should have heard of it.' It will be easier for the reader to imagine my state of mind than for me to describe it. I was discovered by a man whom I believed to be a hired agent of the government, who only had to give a glance to one of the Sibiri with whom Mestre swarmed to have me arrested. I told him to speak softly, and getting down, I asked him to come to one side. I took him behind a house, and seeing that there was nobody in sight, a ditch in front, beyond which the open country extended, I grasped my pike and took him by the neck. At this he gave a struggle, slipped out of my hands, leapt over the ditch, and without turning round set off to run at full speed. As soon as he was some way off he slackened his course, turned round and kissed his hand to me, in token of wishing me a prosperous journey, and, as soon as he was out of my sight, I gave thanks to God that this man by his quickness had preserved me from the commission of a crime for I would have killed him, and he, as it turned out, bore me no ill will. I was in a terrible position. In open war, with all the powers of the Republic, everything had to give way to my safety, which made me neglect no means of attaining my ends. With the gloom of a man who had passed through a great peril, I gave a glance of contempt towards the monk, who now saw to what danger he had exposed us, and then got up again into the carriage. We reached Trevisa without further adventure, and I told the posting-master to get me a carriage and two horses, ready by ten o'clock, though I had no intention of continuing my journey along the highway, both because I lacked means and because I feared pursuit. The innkeeper asked me if I would take any breakfast, of which I stood in great need, for I was dying with hunger, but I did not dare to accept his offer, as a quarter of an hour's delay might prove fatal. I was afraid of being retaken, and of being ashamed of it for the rest of my life, 
for a man of sense ought to be able to snap his fingers at four hundred thousand men in the open country, and if he cannot escape capture he must be a fool. I went out by St. Thomas's gate as if I was going for a short walk, and after walking for a mile on the highway I struck into the fields, resolving not to leave them as long as I should be within the borders of the Republic. The shortest way was by Bassano, but I took the longer path, thinking I might possibly be expected on the more direct road, while they would never think of my leaving the Venetian territory by way of Feltra, which is the longest way of getting into the state subject to the Bishop of Trent. After walking for three hours I let myself drop to the ground, for I could not move a step further. I must either take some food or die there so i told the monk to leave the cloak with me and go to a farm i saw there to buy something to eat i gave him the money and he set off telling me that he thought i had more courage the miserable man did not know what courage was but he was more robust than myself and he had doubtless taken in provisions before leaving the prison besides he had had some chocolate he was thin and wiry and a monk and mental anxieties were unknown to him although the house was not an inn the good farmer's wife sent me a sufficient meal which only cost me thirty venetian sous after satisfying my appetite feeling that sleep was creeping on me i set out again on the tramp well braced up in four hours time i stopped at a hamlet and found that i was twenty-four miles from trevisa i was done up my ankles were swollen and my shoes were in holes there was only another hour of daylight before us stretching myself out beneath a grove of trees i made father balby sit by me and discoursed to him in the manner following we must make for Borgo di Falsugano. It is the first town beyond the borders of the Republic. We shall be as safe there as if we were in London, and we can take our ease for a while. But to get there we must go carefully to work, and the first thing we must do is to separate. You must go by Mantello Woods, and I by the mountains. You by the easiest and shortest way, and I by the longest and most difficult. You with money, and I without a penny. I will make you a present of my cloak, which you must exchange for a great coat and a hat, and everybody will take you for a countryman, as you are luckily rather like one in the face. Take these seventeen livres, which is all that remains to me of the two sequins Count Asquin gave me. You will reach Borgo by the day after tomorrow, and I shall be twenty-four hours later wait for me in the first inn on the left-hand side of the street and be sure i shall come in due season i require a good night's rest in a good bed and providence will get me one somewhere but i must sleep without fear of being disturbed and in your company that would be out of the question i am certain that we are being sought for on all sides and that our descriptions have been so correctly given that if we went into any inn together we should be certain to be arrested you see the state i am in and my urgent necessity for a ten hours rest farewell then do you go that way and i will take this and i will find somewhere near here a rest for the sole of my foot I have been expecting you to say as much, said Father Balby, 
and for answer i will remind you of the promise you gave me when i let myself be persuaded to break into your cell you promised me that we should always keep company and so don't flatter yourself that i shall leave you your fate and mine are linked together we shall be able to get a good refuge for our money we won't go to the inns and no one will arrest us you are determined are you not to follow the good advice i have given you i am we shall see about that i rose to my feet though with some difficulty and taking the measure of his height i marked it out upon the ground then drawing my pike from my pocket i proceeded with the utmost coolness to excavate the earth taking no notice of the questions the monk asked me after working for a quarter of an hour i set myself to gaze sadly upon him and i told him that i felt obliged as a christian to warn him to commend his soul to god since i am about to bury you here alive or dead and if you prove the stronger you will bury me you can escape if you wish to as i shall not pursue you he made no reply and i betook myself to my work again but i confess that i began to be afraid of being rushed to extremities by this brute of whom i was determined to rid myself at last whether convinced by my arguments or afraid of my pike he came towards me not guessing what he was about i presented the point of my pike towards him but i had nothing to fear i will do what you want said he i straightway gave him all the money i had and promising to rejoin him at borgo i bade him farewell although i had not a penny in my pocket and had two rivers to cross over i congratulated myself on having got rid of a man of his character for by myself i felt confident of being able to cross the bounds of the republic end of chapter thirty part two recording by paul adams www dot com